Good morning to you all. We're continuing our studies in Luke this morning, in the early chapters of Luke. And today we're going to look at uh, another in a long string of divine encounters, encounters between earth and heaven, between the human and the divine. These early chapters of Luke tell a story of what is a seismic shift in history. It's been 400 years since God's chosen people had last heard a recognized prophetic voice. For 400 years, Israel had been subject to foreign rule. First the Persians, then the Greeks, and finally, for the last 60 years, the Romans had made Palestine part of their empires. The once great kingdom of David and Solomon was now ancient history, and according to scripture, that was a clear sign that God was utterly fed up with his people. The promise of the coming savior who had set everything right was still present, but after 400 years, who was really expecting something to happen in their own lifetime? Worship had changed too. Little local synagogues were increasingly taking the place of the great Jerusalem festivals of the good old days, rather like the place of Christian worship in our own society today. Judaism had become increasingly introverted, almost secretive. But this bookish, theoretical faith of the time was about to be totally disrupted. In chapter 4 of this gospel, Jesus visits his local synagogue. You may remember the story. that He reads out a famous messianic promise from Isaiah. But then there is uproar when he sits down and says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your ears. These early chapters of Luke describe what is a shock to the people of God. God is, in effect, applying the defibrillator paddles to the apparently lifeless corpse of his people and saying, stand clear. The religious people of the day were constantly astonished by Jesus' teaching because his word was with authority. And it's into this dust-dry spiritual atmosphere in Israel, into this hopeless, aimless, pointless, pointless subject nation that the word suddenly comes that the long-awaited saviour is actually here. Not just coming, he's here. And the news comes with a sudden explosion, explosion of the supernatural. Angels appear to ordinary people, proclaiming miraculous births and the overturning of the current world order. The Holy Spirit falls upon Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah in turn, resulting in an outpouring of prophecy. Most recently, on the very day of Jesus' birth, a bunch of shepherds have heard the same message from an angel. And then they've seen the whole of heaven opened up and a vast crowd of angels singing praise and glory to God and proclaiming peace and goodwill towards mankind. Suddenly, neglected, defeated, oppressed Israel is right back in the spotlight once again. And in fact, something much bigger is happening than just political restoration in Israel. Religion just got real, as they say in the movies. Now, in our own day, some of our Christian brothers and sisters remain suspicious of the experiential and the miraculous, the supernatural. Put off by Pentecostal excesses, real or imagined, they shy away from religious experiences and indeed from feelings into the supposed safety of the purely intellectual. And I say supposed safety because Romans 8, 7 warns us that the fleshly mind is at war with God. 
So if we're going to retreat into the intellectual, we'd better be very careful of what mind we are retreating into. This anti-experience mindset was memorably uh, called by a friend of mine down south, sound doctrine, dead sound doctrine. <laughs> in fact, we don't have to deny the intellect in order to experience God. Luke was an intensely intellectual and literary author. Ask any New Testament scholar. But look what he emphasizes in his account of the Savior's birth and subsequent life. The miraculous, the angelic, the prophetic, the guidance of the Holy Spirit are all over this gospel. And that's neither coincidence nor mistake. He begins, as he means to go on, with obvious signs of the kingdom of God breaking into human experience. In chapter 7, we're going to see this driving narrative encapsulated when John sends from prison. Do you remember? To ask Jesus if he's the Messiah or they should wait for somebody else. And Jesus' only answer to him was to heal a load of people, expel a load of demons, and then say, go and tell John what you've just seen and heard. Now, if that's how Jesus himself defines himself as saviour, why on earth or heaven would we expect him to be any different today? When Jesus turns up, miracles happen. The barren bear children. Ordinary people experience the extraordinary. That's not anti-intellectual. It's biblical. In today's passage, we're going to meet another ordinary bloke filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a distinct nod to Hemingway's book, The Old Man and the Sea, I'd like to call this talk Simeon, The Old Man and the Spirit. Let's read together. Luke 2, 21 to 35. Nothing is going to come up on the screen. Before they ask. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
Now, this does strike me as a particularly Jewish story, which is why my introduction lingered rather on the history of Israel. This, in Jewish terms, is the tale of a male child, a man, and a message. And throughout the whole thing, I want to suggest there's another M that's quite dominant, and that is Mary. Part one, the male child, verses 21 to 24. It's interesting to note that in this book, written primarily to Gentile believers, Luke is so very intent on establishing Jesus's Jewishness. In these four verses, he twice mentions the law of the Lord, establishing the law of Moses, i.e. our Old Testament, as the law of God and indeed the law of Jesus himself. Now, this might be in answer to two influences that emerged around that time that either chose to make uh, Christianity a mere sect of Judaism or to disconnect the two entirely, the two religions entirely. I said unwisely in my introduction a few weeks ago that Luke is writing a story, not teaching theology. But as Chris very kindly and quite correctly pointed out in a later talk, I was overstating the case. There's little doubt when we look at the way that Luke tells the story that he's extremely concerned that good theology should flow out of our reading of it. I think what I was really trying to convey is something about the mindset that we need as we address um, Luke and indeed much of scripture. That is to read it the way it was written, as a flowing story, not as a list of separate rules, injunctions, and uh, propositions. Propositions. Now, read that way, verses 21 to 24 don't suggest, as it would to the legalistic, split-it-up mind, that all imitators of Christ need to go through this purification and circumcision and stuff like that. And not at all. Luke is telling us what happened, not what we should do. But at the same time, from the story he tells, a distinct theological point emerges. Jesus cannot be separated from his Jewish roots. Now, his birth is surrounded by new and miraculous things, but the context is all Judaism. It's both and, not either or. In these verses, Jesus gets presented to us as a full Jewish citizen, albeit one both born and indeed named supernaturally. But I think his naming also suggests something about the relationship between Joseph and Mary. This is the name the angel told her to give him. Whatever other ideas Joseph might have had, it was Mary who got her way. Culturally, as we saw in chapter 1, in the case of John the Baptist, um, a father was always expected to name his son. But it appears that Joseph was entirely on board with this whole visitation story and the divine conception of Jesus. Effectively, he gave up his naming rights in favor of Jesus' heavenly father. In addition, the prominence of Mary in the narrative also seems quite deliberate. In such a male-dominated culture, we might even call it feminist. In verse 19, we read about Mary alone, that she kept these things and pondered them in her heart. And we see the same emphasis again in verse 37, as Simeon, surely in breach of protocol, addresses Mary, not Mary and Joseph. This ritual, the presentation in the temple, verses 22 to 24, dates back to the very first Passover, when the firstborn of Egypt died, while the Jewish firstborn, 
protected by the blood of a lamb on the wood of the doorpost. Does that remind you of anything? We're all saved. From that time to this, in Jewish life and teaching, their firstborn males all belonged to the Lord. And it remained the practice to present firstborn boys to God. It seems it was also common practice to combine this event with the mother's ritual purification after giving birth. It was something that had to be done as well, so to save an extra trip to Jerusalem, let's do the two at the same time. That's just see, From the way Luke writes, it just seems like that's what people did. The doves or pigeons mentioned were the sacrifice offered by mothers who were too poor to buy a lamb, but well off enough not to just give the grain offering of the very poorest. This places Jesus for us socially in the middle of three classes, as well as firmly within the Jewish faith. So much for the male child in Jewish law. Now, part two, the man. And we're not actually told Simeon's age, although he's always depicted as an old geezer, but we can assume he was very old from the way he speaks in verse 29. It seems he's just waiting for one thing before he feels he can die in peace. The last time I saw my own father, I asked him how he was, and struggling to speak, he simply said, time to go. And he was indeed gone not many days later. It often seems that the very old can cling on to life by an effort of will until certain relatives have visited or something else is fulfilled. But in Simeon's case, it's much more than that. This otherwise ordinary man not only lived right and believed right, as verse 25 tells us. He also prayed right, for he was longing for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was longing for the coming of the Messiah. And significantly, we're also told that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And we might not be as sure as Luke's first readers were what this actually means. But I think we can take it that if you bumped into old Simeon on a Sunday morning in church he'd immediately strike you as someone you wanted to hang out with. In fact, he was so well-versed in the ways of the Spirit, verse 26, that he'd been able to hear and believe that he wouldn't die until he saw the Christ. So his story speaks of more than just the triumph of the human spirit clinging on to life. It is uh, a life of faith that he lives, a life in the Spirit, so he didn't just happen to be in the temple when Jesus was brought in. No, he came there in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit guided him there at the right time. And it was by the same Spirit that he recognized this child as the Messiah and spoke prophetically over him. Imagine Simeon's feelings when he realizes that his long wait is over. I referred earlier to Hemingway's story, The Old Man and the Sea. It's the tale of an elderly fisherman who's fallen on hard times, so he decides to, to take his boat way out beyond the rest of the fleet into the deep in search of a great catch. And there ensues a days-long battle, first with a giant marlin, and then after it's caught with the sharks that eat this potentially life-saving, um, life-changing catch out from underneath him. It's a tale of human resilience in the face of overwhelming adversity. Simeon, I want to suggest, is the same kind of adventurer. Only the element that he navigated was not the sea, but the Holy Spirit. He, too, has gone further out than most of us would dare in his belief of what God has said to him. And now he goes even further as he prophesies over the child. 
his faithful clinging to what God has revealed to him can't have gone unopposed either, because it never does. There's only one reason he could hang on to God's assurance of a fulfilled life. There's only one way he could have been in the right place at the right time to meet the Messiah. Only one thing enabled him to speak out the words of the Nunc Dimittis, which is still sung in traditional churches to this very day. There's only one power by which he could discern and deliver the second vital personal prophecy for Mary's ears only. And that was that the Holy Spirit was upon him. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come when I finish. That is the man. So we've done the, man, the male child, that's the man. Uh, and when I grow up, I want to be like that man. Uh, thirdly, we have the message. Um, this comes in two parts. The first is a formal poem, verses 29 to 32, prophetically speaking out Simeon's own reflections on the occasion and its huge significance for the world. I might have written this during his long years of waiting, or it might have been uh, an inspired utterance at the moment, spontaneous. It's impossible to know. Either way, it reads to me like uh, an announcement in the temple at large. If, as I suspect, he did speak it out loud rather than just whispering to the baby in his arms, onlookers would have been surprised, not at him, since he was a temple regular, but at what he had to say. Perhaps his fellow temple regulars were completely fed up with old Simeon banging on about the consolation of Israel. But now they hear his voice raised in praise and prophecy. They look round to see what's brought this on. And he's holding a baby. As Chris memorably said the other week, that's your plan, Lord? A baby? This is indeed a bold prophetic statement. And even bolder is verse 31's reference to all peoples. Verse 32's to revelation to the Gentiles. What was the average temple goer to make of that? But for a moment, let's imagine ourselves as early Gentile Christians hearing these words for the first time. We, we know nothing of Judaism. We came to faith by word of mouth. Our faith hinges on recent events in a distant land, confirmed by miracles we've seen with our own eyes. We've recently become aware of a debate in the wider church about whether we need to become completely Jewish and get circumcised and all that in order to follow Jesus. Well, to people in that situation, this is wonderful news. Simeon was as Jewish as they come, and he spoke clearly of Jesus being for all peoples and a light to us Gentiles. That was a grand announcement. But then comes something much more intimate and personal, and I think it shows both Simeon's and God's care for Mary, the individual. Verses 34 and 35 are spoken to Mary alone, and they address directly the pain and difficulty entailed in being the mother of the Messiah. Once again, Luke's narrative favours the female in a male-dominated world, and so does Simeon. Mary and Joseph marvel, we read in verse 33, at Simeon's declaration. Now, you might think that by now, after all the things that have happened already, they should be getting used to the fact that their son is going to be God's Messiah, the Savior of Israel. But perhaps what they're wondering about is a bit more specific, because now those pesky Gentiles are getting a look in. 
as well. You know, the ones who've oppressed us for the last 400 years. Well, what are they to make of that? It would make anyone stop and think. But following the great news comes the not-so-good, the not-so-public news. Simeon blesses Mary and Joseph and then warns her of the sword that would pierce her soul. This refers most obviously to the horrifying death her son would undergo, but also surely to the many hurts and rejections that he was going to face throughout his life. And yet this is a, a kindly warning. This baby is indeed the glory of Israel and the revelation to the Gentiles, but it's not going to be an easy watch. Not only will there be turmoil among the powers that be because of him, the fall and rising of many in Israel, and that's bound to make him unpopular. He's also going to be a sign that will be opposed. And it has to be that way to reveal the thoughts of people's hearts. The condition of our hearts, Simeon's prophecy suggests, is revealed by our attitudes to Jesus. And many will reject him. The blessing is real enough. The prophecy of greatness is perfectly true. Yet as we know in our own lives, following God's plan for our lives doesn't make everything easy. As Jesus himself promised, in this world, you will have trouble. Blessings come with buffetings, as the old ones used to say. Following God's call is always going to put us at odds with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But as John Wimber was fond of saying, most of that will just be people doing people stuff. God's people have to concentrate on God doing God stuff. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Come, Holy Spirit, move among your people, we pray. Come and fill us. Our hearts are waiting, like Simeon, for you to come and do your thing. So move among us, Lord. Move in healing and deliverance. Move in comfort. Move in opening up what is closed.